Thank you, Bunny. My name is Jacqueline, and I'm an alcoholic. And I would like to begin by thanking the committee for asking me to come this weekend. I have had a ball. I really have had a good time. And I was telling them earlier in the weekend that uh, before I left home, one of my pigeons had her fourth birthday, Friday. And uh, I called her to wish her a happy birthday, and she said, well, now you have a good time down in, in Little Rock. And I said, oh, I will. And she said, are you nervous? And I said, it's really very strange. When I go to a conference, I'm very nervous, you know, to meet new people and, and to see new faces. But when I go to anything connected with service, I just feel at home. And, uh, you know, I got off that plane, and uh, Bunny didn't have any big, you know, bow in her hair or anything special to tell me that she was there to wait waiting for me, but when I got off the plane and I looked at the end of the aisle and she was standing there and I saw a little red badge right here and I thought, that's her. And so I'm very grateful that you asked me down and, and I really am enjoying every minute of it. But really what you asked me down for was to share my experience, strength, and my hope. And the only way I know how to do that is tell you who I am, where I came from, and I do hope that I don't meander so that I can get into the wonderful things that have happened to me in my sobriety. Uh, I am not a native Kentuckian. I was born in St. Louis, Missouri, and I am the youngest of three daughters. I have a sister who is 11 years older than me and another sister who is about five years older than I am. I had a very happy childhood. I had a very happy teenage years, so I can't blame drinking on any part of my childhood. We had one particular problem in our household, and I was born of the generation that if you had a problem in your family, it stayed within your family and nobody else knew anything about it. And my problem was that my father, who was a plumbing contractor and had his own business, would sometimes go out on Friday night or maybe some night during the week, about 4.30 after work, and he would meander in around 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning. And my mother and my father would have these terrible, terrible arguments, and they would say things to each other that were just unreal, and I would lay up in my bed and think, how can two people who love each other so much say those terrible things to each other? And there would be silence in my household for maybe a day or two, and then after that, everything would be hunky-dory, and my father might go another six months or another year before he went and decided to go out and have a good time again. I never understood this, and I, I really didn't understand it as a child. But when I came into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I knew what my father's problem was. When I was a teenager, um, you all recall a fateful convention that they had in St. Louis that Bill Wilson was at, and they had it in Keele Auditorium. And at that time, we had a lot of headlines in the newspaper about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And my father went to a couple of AA meetings during that time, and he got himself a sponsor. And he went to the meeting as long as his sponsor was there. And his sponsor moved out of town, and my, ne my father never went back. But he did stay sober. And for that, I'm internally grateful to Alcoholics Anonymous coming to St. Louis and Alcoholics Anonymous being at Keele Auditorium so my dad could hear all about it. But anyway, I'll go on with my story. That was my problem. And uh, it always seemed to resolve itself very well. And... Uh, that's just the way things were in our family. We didn't talk about it to anybody else. My father was a good provider. My mother loved him very much. I had a happy childhood. Went through eighth grade, went through high school, was a very good student. Ran with a bunch of kids that were very athletic, and, you know, the guys played baseball and football and basketball, and I played basketball. 
And we were just into athletics, and drinking was never any part of my teenage years. I just, it wasn't because it wasn't available, but I just ran with a group of people that didn't drink and didn't want to drink. When I got to be a senior in high school, my dad wanted me desperately to go to college. Both my sisters had gone, and he wanted me to go. And I had taken business courses in high school, and I fell in love with what I thought was the business world. And uh, I kind of uh, understood what they talked about when uh, I got into the program about self-will run riot, because my dad practically got down on bended knee for me to go to college, and I said no, that I wanted to go out and I wanted to go to work. So at 17, I went to work in a real estate and insurance office, and my boss was about the same age as my dad, and most of the people were maybe a few years younger than him, and I was the youngest in the office. I had my first drink at the Christmas party the first year I worked, and my boss fixed me a highball, handed it to me. I took a sip of it, and I put it down on the desk, and I had a good time at that party, and I went home, and I never had another sip of alcohol the whole evening. Uh, I'd Continued to date the boys that I knew in, in high school, but eventually, after a year or so, I started dating some of the fellows that I was meeting through work. And my boss opened a savings and loan, and we hired in a bunch of, of, of younger folks, more my age. And uh, one day, one of these girls that I worked with came up to me and said, uh, would you even think about going on a blind date? And I said, I've never been on a blind date in my life. And she said, well, if you don't go out with this fellow, then I can't go. And it was a big, long line. And so I said, okay, I'll go. So this, this young man came and picked me up. And he was about four years older than I was. And he had just gotten out of the Air Force. And we went out that night, and I liked him very much. And on the way home, he said, would you like to stop and get a nightcap? Now, I already felt a little inferior because he was older than I was, and uh, four years at that age makes a lot of difference, and I didn't want to do the wrong thing. And I had never really tried to impress anybody in my life up to this point. But anyway, I said, yeah, we'll stop and get a nightcap. So we went to these, one of these little neighborhood bars where all the young people went, and he said, what would you like to drink? And I couldn't think of anything, so I said, I'll have a Coke High. So they brought me the Coke High, and we sat there for a while and talked, and I took a couple sips, and he took me home, and it was a very nice evening. Well, he called me for another date, and we continued to date, and after each date, this is what he would suggest, let's get a nightcap on the way home. Well, see, I thought this was what people did that were four years older than me. I didn't know any better. And so I kept ordering the Coke High, and we sat there and talked, and we'd go home. But one night he said to me, why don't you ever finish your drink? And I didn't have an answer for that. I don't know why I never finished my drink. I don't to this day know why I never finished those drinks. And uh, I said, well, if you want me to drink it, I will. So I picked up the Coke and I chug-a-lugged it. I mean, I really drank it. And so on the way home, I got embarrassingly sick. And uh, so he stopped the car a couple of times, and then he pulled in the driveway, and I ran in the house, and I thought, that's the last time I ever see him. And by this time, I was beginning to care for him. Well, it wasn't long after, just a few days, he called me, and he asked me to go on another date. And so I got in the car, and before we were barely out of the driveway, he said, I want to talk to you about your drinking. <laughs> and I said, well, to tell you the absolute truth, I don't drink. And then he probably asked me the import most important question of our lives. He said, would you like for me to teach you how? And I said, yes, I would. <laughs> And so he said, the first thing you've got to do is quit drinking that Coke because that's what makes you sick to your stomach. <laughs> and the second thing you've got to do is quit drinking bourbon because he said ladies don't really drink bourbon. 
He said, I guarantee you that if you drink scotch and water, you're not going to get sick. So we went to the neighborhood bar, and he ordered me a scotch and water, and I drank it, and I didn't get sick, and I felt very good. And he ordered another one for me, and I drank that one, and I felt great. And all the way home, he congratulated me for being such a good pupil, and I congratulated him for being such a good teacher. About a year later, the three of us were married. And that was really a very good basis for our marriage. Everything we did involved alcohol. Uh, we both worked. We'd come home from work, and he'd open a couple beers, and we'd have a couple beers, and then I'd fix dinner. If we had people in, uh, you know, after you get married, you, you graduate to beer. There's no more scotch and water. And uh, so then we would, if we had people in, we would serve alcohol. If we went out, they would serve us. If we went to a picnic, we would have booze. If we went to a movie, we would stop and get a drink on the way home. And I thought that this was a way of life. And I was very pleased with my way of life. I thought it was very nice. And I thought I was an accepted part of his social circle. Everyone that we ran with was older than I was. And I really felt like I belonged. Well, we weren't married very long, just a couple months. And I started getting sick, and I discovered that I was pregnant. And it was a very hard pregnancy, and I was sick a lot. And after about... Uh, six and a half or seven months of the pregnancy, I was taken to the hospital, and we lost our first child, a little girl. And I really didn't know how to handle this. I had nothing really big happen to me in my whole existence up to this point. Uh, I had a God. I had a religion. And my religion was more or less based on the fact that if you did the right thing, the right things happened, and if you did the wrong thing, terrible things happened. And I reasoned out in my sick mind at that point that, God felt that I had done something terribly wrong to take this child that I wanted so badly. And so I got angry at God. I didn't have anyone else to get angry at. My husband was very upset, but he was very young, too, and really didn't have any words of consolation for me. And so I left that hospital a very angry young woman. I went back home, and I went back to work, and uh, we lived in an apartment, and I decided we were just going to make a lot of money, and I was going to go out and buy us a house. And uh, working for a real estate company, that's exactly what happened. We saved our money, and we bought a little house. And after we were in this house about a year or two, we had our first child, a little boy. And uh, I reasoned out that I did this whole thing myself because I really didn't believe in God anymore. And this baby was my own creation, and I had done it, and I had really fulfilled my dreams. And three years later, we had another son, and I was very proud of him, too. And I reasoned in my mind that uh, we needed a bigger house now. I was reading a lot of McCall's and Better Homes and Gardens, and I was trying to be, you know, like the family that you read about in these books. And so we bought a lot, and we had a house built. And we had the chain fence around the backyard, and we had the swing set with the glider and the two swings. And we had a double-car garage, and he had his car on one side, and I had mine on the other. And, you know, I can remember getting in that house and watching him tootle off to work, and I thought, you know, I've got everything in the world that I want. There really isn't anything I want. And, you know, I always believed this, that you went to school, you grew up, you got married, and you lived happily ever after. That's what I truly believed. And that's where I thought I was in the day that I was in that house and I had what, what I had at that point. But I was soon to find out that that was not true. Up to this point, alcohol still was a social thing for me. 
there were times, and I must admit this now on thinking back, there were times when I would have this strange feeling at gut level that something was missing from my life. You know, I would sit in the living room and I'd think, is this all there is? Uh, it's a strange feeling, but maybe some of you women know what I'm talking about. It's it's a very insidious thing, and I think, oh, just have a couple drinks and you'll feel better. And you know, I was right. I had a couple drinks and I did feel better. I was relaxed and I was content, and there was nothing else hanging over my head that was going to happen. But after we moved in this house, about six months later, my husband came home and he told me that he had been fired. And he had never been fired from a job, and he was scared. And I was scared because he was scared. And so he started answering some ads. And uh, he came home one day and he said, I've accepted a job in Cleveland, Ohio. Well, now, I was born and raised in St. Louis, and so was he, and all my relatives and my friends and my school friends were there. And, and this man is asking me to pick up and move to Cleveland, Ohio. And I said, you know, I'm not going to Cleveland, Ohio. And so we had a big argument, and finally my dad came over, and he kind of played the uh, mediator, and he kind of reminded me about the marriage vows. And uh, so my husband went on to start his new job, and, and I sold the house and packed the belongings, and I was very angry. I was very resentful toward him and uh, very scared, very scared. So I moved out of my little cocoon, and we moved to Cleveland, Ohio, and we rented a one side of a duplex. And I had to learn to live a different kind of life. My husband worked five and a half, traveled five and a half days out of the week, and I was home all week without working with my two sons. And I felt very overburdened because I had the responsibility of these two kids. And they did get every childhood disease imaginable that year, and they were constantly sick. And uh, my husband would call home at night, and he would tell me he went to such and such a restaurant, and he had this super dinner, and um, went out with the boys, and, you know, all this resentment was inside of me. And then I would call home, and I would talk to my mother and dad, and they would try to encourage me, but I was so homesick. I was homesick, and I was angry, and I didn't like the turn that my life was taking. And I found myself putting the kids to bed early at night, and I'd fix myself a drink, and I'd go up in the bedroom and turn on the TV, and I'd watch TV. And it got to the point where I would wake up at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, and the TV would have snow on it, and the lights would be on, and I would think, oh, you fell asleep. Well, I didn't fall asleep. I was passing out is what I was doing. I went through this for about a year, feeling very sorry for myself, and one day my husband came home and told me that, the traveling life wasn't all it was built up to be, and he was tired of it, and so he was taking another job. And it meant that we were moving to Detroit, Michigan. So we moved bag and baggage to Detroit, Michigan, and I was pregnant at the time, and I was going to go back to St. Louis to have my baby. But it wound up that they had to take a baby, and I had my first little girl, and she was born in Dearborn, Michigan, and she was absolutely gorgeous. She had strawberry blonde hair and big blue eyes, and was absolutely perfect, and I thought, this is what I've always wanted, what I've always wanted. And I brought her home, and I was happy for about three weeks. And one day it suddenly dawned on me that I didn't know one neighbor, that I really didn't even know where I lived in the city. I had never driven around the city. I mean, I got to Detroit and had the baby, and that was it. Uh, I, did, I realized that I didn't have a car. I didn't know where the grocery store was. I didn't know where the drug store was. My husband was doing all this running around. 
And I was very unhappy with that, and my little baby girl was laying in her crib, and my happiness just kind of floated out the door. And so I started making drinks before dinner, and uh, I would test them to see if they were all right. And then my husband would come home, and we would have maybe two or three drinks before dinner. And I would tell him how much I hated Detroit, and he would tell me how much he hated his job. And then we would eat dinner, and I would put the kids to bed, and then we would make some more drinks, and we would talk about some more of this hate that we had. And we started arguing with each other about this, that, or the other thing. And I didn't like the way our marriage was going. I didn't like the behavior of the kids. I didn't like where I lived. I didn't like a lot of things in Detroit, Michigan. And I didn't know that it was going to get anything but worse. We only stayed in Detroit a year, and my husband took a job in Chicago. We moved to Chicago, and I put the stuff in the closets, found out about the schools, and I made up my mind that I was just going to stay home and take care of my kids, and the world could just go hang itself. I wanted roots, and I wasn't getting roots. I didn't have any. I felt like a fifth wheel. Uh, I just really had, at that time, I, I couldn't decipher what reason I had in this to be in this world. I really couldn't. And alcohol was the only thing that made me capable of living with other people and living with myself. And so I drank whenever it was possible. But it wasn't long before some of the gals in the neighborhood came and knocked on the door with the coffee mugs in their hand and said, well, hello, we're glad you're here. We're all just having a ball. And it didn't take me long to realize that I had moved into a real swinging neighborhood. And all the guys worked down in the loop, and most of the people that lived there were transients. And they would leave early in the morning and take the train to work and wouldn't get back in at home till around 7.30, 8 o'clock at night. So we girls were at home all day to do our thing. Well, I joined just about every organization there that I could join. And uh, all my neighbors belonged to them. And uh, we would go running around to all these meetings and all, do all these little chores. And whenever we were done, we'd, we'd meet at one or the other's house for drinks. Now, we had till 7, 30, 8 o'clock at night, and in the summertime, we'd meet on the patio, and in the wintertime, we'd meet in the family room. And uh, I was really having a ball. I really was. And uh, I learned that on the weekends, the guys would all get together, and some of them would play golf, or, or else we'd just have a party on Saturday night. And at one of these parties, there was always someone that passed out. And you know, I accepted this as normal, that you have a party, and at least one person passes out. And the really thing, weird thing is at one of those parties, I passed out, and I thought, it's my turn, you know. <laughs> my husband would pass out. It would be the same thing. My thinking changed so subtly that, you know, everything that was happening to me was, was so acceptable that alcoholism was just really getting a good hold on my life, and I thought I was doing fine. I truly did. After I had my daughter, they told me I couldn't have any more children because I had lost six children, uh, not counting the three that I had in, in various stages of pregnancy, and so they said no more children. So I began taking the pill. And when I got to Chicago, they told me that I should see a doctor just to check in, and I did that. And the doctor said, your blood pressure is very high, and I want you to go see an internist. Well, I told you about all the fun I was having, and I really didn't have time to be running around to doctors when I felt so good. And uh, one day I was sitting in my family room, and my whole left side went numb. And they took me to the emergency room of the hospital, and I was checked in, and they told me that I had had a light stroke 
as a result of high blood pressure, as a result of taking the pill. I was in that hospital for a while, and I had a physical therapist that worked with me. Uh, the left side of my face was all hanging down. I had no use of my left hand or my left foot. And I was very, very angry with God. I was angry with the world. And I swore at that physical therapist every time she walked in the door. But they worked with me very hard, and I went home and, and did the exercises that I was supposed to do. And uh, today, the only thing I really can't do is open a pickle jar with this hand, and I think I can live with that. But I got the use of my arm and my hand and my leg, and my face went back in shape, and, and I didn't say thank you to anyone. Uh, anything good that happened to me from here on out, I deserved, I felt like it. Because I wasn't such a bad person. It was just the world that was picking on me. We lived in Chicago for four and a half years, and things got very, very bad there. I discovered the drink of my choice there, which was the martini. I thought that that was probably the most glamorous drink I'd ever seen in my whole entire life. I loved holding the glass. I, held, I loved what a martini did for me, and it continued to do that for me until the very end. And what it did, it put me into oblivion. It made me irresponsible. It made me obnoxious. It made me not feel. It made me not hurt. And uh, for anything that beautiful to do all that, I thought was wonderful. I stayed in Chicago four and a half years, and my husband came home one day and said, we're moving, I've quit my job, and we're going to Des Moines, Iowa. I took the plane in Des Moines, and when the plane was coming down on the runway, there was a cow walking across the runway. And I thought, where has he taken me now? We had a lovely home there that we bought, but I really didn't see it. The moving van came, and I put the clothes in the closet, and I put the things in the drawers, and I sent the kids off to school, and I closed the drapes, and I began to drink. And that beautiful martini in Chicago, Illinois, turned into about two fingers of vodka in a water glass once under the faucet, no ice. And I had to drink that. I needed it. I needed it just to wake up in the morning and face the rotten world that was outside those drapes. Well, I sat in that house and I drank and drank, and I had gone to a doctor because I was still carrying high blood pressure when we moved there, and he was an internist. So I was checked in with the doctor, and I, I kept drinking, and eventually I was in the house, and I started running a very high fever, and I called this doctor, and he was in the emergency room at the hospital, and he told me to meet him down there. So I met him down there, and I had 105 fever, and he checked me into the hospital, and they started taking all these tests. Well, they took them all, and they got down to the very last one, and he came in, and he said, we think that you have hepatitis, and if you do, we're going to have to inoculate your children, so we want to run a liver biopsy. So I said, okay, run your liver biopsy. Well, they did, and the next day, this doctor, who was really very gentle and very nice, came in my room, and he was so angry, he was white, and he said, why didn't you tell me the way you drink? And, you know, I said something very honest to him. I looked at him, and I said, I didn't really think it was important. So he proceeded to tell me what my liver looked like, and it wasn't pleasant. But he did tell me if I stayed in that hospital for two weeks and took the IVs that he gave me, that he could make my liver as good as new, but that I couldn't drink anymore. So I stayed in the hospital, and I took the IVs, and I went home, and I recuperated for about three weeks, and I went back into his office, 
and he took my blood pressure and he checked me over and he said, you are in perfect shape. And I said, you just lay off those martinis and you'll be fine. I thanked him very gratefully and I left his office and I stopped in the nearest liquor store and I got a bottle of vodka and a bottle of vermouth and I went home and I mixed a shaker of martinis and when my husband came home, we drank to my good health. You don't have to tell me about insanity. You don't have to tell me about it at all. I knew exactly what you were talking about when I got here. We only stayed in Des Moines a year and we moved back to Cleveland. This was the last four years of my drinking, and it was pure hell. It was absolute, total hell. My father died, my father-in-law died, and my brother-in-law died all within one summer. As I said, I'm from St. Louis, and when I got the news of my father dying, we drove back there, and uh, I was very upset. There's nothing more I can say. I adored my dad. There was just nobody on earth that I thought that I could talk to except him. And I found out later why he understood me so much. But when I came back from that funeral, I was very upset. And I had seen a doctor when I moved to Cleveland because, of course, I was carrying high blood pressure again. And this GP that I talked to, I told him how I drank. And uh, he told me he didn't want me for a patient. He said, there's no need for you to drink the way you drink, and I really don't have the time to spend with you. And he gave me a card um, that had a psychiatrist's name on it. And I brought it home and showed it to my husband, and we had a good laugh because, you know, we both knew I wasn't crazy. But I took that card and I put it in a drawer. I didn't throw it away. When I came back from my father's funeral, I was really very upset. And alcohol wasn't doing for me what it did for me before. My friend alcohol was not taking away the pain like it used to. It was giving me the oblivion that I wanted, but it was not giving me the results that I could motivate and, and be numb at the same time. I would drink it and I would be out. I wouldn't get that numb feeling anymore. So I got out the psychiatrist's card and I gave him a call and I told him some cock and bull story about not having a car and having little kids and not being able to get in his office, but this terrible thing happened to me. So I told him about my father's death. And he was very sympathetic, and he said, I want you to get in the office because I really would like to talk to you. But in the meantime, I'm going to send you something out. So the friendly druggist came, and he brought me a nice big bottle of Librium. And it said, take three times a day or as needed. <laughs> well, you know, the first day I took it three times a day. But I really did not know that or as needed meant less than three times a day. So I had a drink and I had a Librium and that made me feel a little bit better. Well, we had the other two guests and the, the process was I'd get home, I'd call the psychiatrist, I'd tell him I couldn't get in and he sent me out some Valium. And so I took the Valium and I took the Librium and I took the scotch or the vodka or the beer or whatever I had in the house. And Jackie was walking around the house with her eyes open, but that's just about all that was working. I mean, I just walked around like a zombie. and. Uh, I can't describe to you what those months were like. Um, I can tell you what happened to me right before I was put in the hospital for the first time. My days would go pretty much like this. My, my husband would get up in the morning and he would come out into the kitchen and he would have a white shirt on and a tie and a suit. And I would look at him and I would hate him. I would just hate him. 
And he would go in and he would make himself some coffee or fix his breakfast, and then he would leave for work. And sometimes he said goodbye and sometimes he didn't. And then my older son would get up and he would go in the kitchen and he would fix breakfast for himself and the two little ones. And they would sit down at the table with me and no one would say a word. And they would eat their breakfast. And then the two little ones would go back in their room and they would get ready for school. And my oldest son would take the dishes and he would rinse them and we'd put them in the dishwasher. And when he was done with that, my daughter would come out and she would have her shoes and she would have a hairbrush and she would sit in a chair and my oldest son would tie her shoes and he would comb her hair. And I would sit there and I would watch that like I was really not in the room or in the world. And I would see my only daughter sitting there with my son trying to make an effort to comb her hair. And I would think the daughter that I wanted all my life and I can't even comb her hair. And they would get on the school bus and I would begin to drink and sometimes they would come home and I would be in the middle of the living room floor. I would be passed out in my bedroom. Or I might be in the kitchen attempting to cook dinner and there might be smoke in the kitchen. Those kids never knew what they were going to hit when they hit that door. And this went on and on until one day I couldn't get out of that chair and my husband called the psychiatrist and I went into his office and they put me in a psychiatric hospital. And I was there for six months and they told me that I had living problems and if that they could cure my living problems there would be no need for me to drink. I was given every drug imaginable, I was given therapy and in six months time I was sent home to a house that I hate, to a husband that I hated, to kids that I hated and they told me to get well. And I tried. But as most of you alcoholics know, one day I wanted to drink. Somebody said the wrong thing, the wrong thing happened. Maybe I just got thirsty, I don't know. But I picked up that drink and after I drank it, I thought this is the beginning of the end. To make a long story short, I tried to commit suicide and I almost made it. But I was taken to the hospital again and I woke up in about three days. And it was the saddest day of my life. Because, you see, these people wouldn't even let me die. I didn't know how to live, and they wouldn't let me die. And here I was caught in the middle, and I didn't know what to do about it. I was in and out of that hospital like a yo-yo. I received a series of 22 shock treatments, and I was diagnosed a manic depressive. Each time they sent me home, I drank. and went right back into the hospital with Boku medication. I met a lady in that hospital that used to follow me around the hallways and say, you're an alcoholic, you're an alcoholic. <laughs> she was about five feet tall and she walked around with a big book in her hand. And, you know, I learned very quickly you don't argue with anybody in a psychiatric hospital. And I said, if you think I'm an alcoholic, I'm an alcoholic, so be it. And when she would get out of the hospital, she, tried, she was trying very desperately to make this program. When she would get out of the hospital, she would come and pick me up and take me to an AA meeting in Cleveland. All I knew is when I went to an AA meeting, I did not drink. Now, I was told that I was a very nervous, high-strung woman, and I would have to take medication for the rest of my life, which I did. But when I went to an AA meeting, I didn't drink. But it got to the point where I would walk in the door, and people would grab me by the arm, and they would say, Now, you sit in that chair, 
And when they call on you, you just say your name and you say, I'm very grateful to be here. That's it. Don't say any more. You had to sign in and you put your sobriety date in a, in a little book when you came. And every week I had to change my sobriety date. See, I didn't know I was not supposed to drink from meeting to meeting. So they suggested one time that I just wait for a while before I put my sobriety date in there. Anyway, that was my first introduction to AA. My husband eventually decided that he was going to take a job in Louisville, Kentucky. And I was a mess. And my mother had to come and move us from Cleveland because I was absolutely incapable of making the move. So she came and she watched the kids and she helped the movers get the stuff in the van and she went with us to Louisville. She also unpacked the stuff, put it in the closet so you can you know what kind of condition I was in. I was a thing. I was an it. Everybody worked around me. Uh, they put me places, you know. I just was nothing. And uh, my mother stayed. We moved there around the end of October. My mother stayed until Thanksgiving, the day after Thanksgiving. And I'm sure that was so that my kids would have Thanksgiving dinner. But when we put her on that plane, you know, I had the feeling that I was never going to see her again. And what really scared me is I didn't care. I really didn't care. I couldn't stand to look at her. It hurt me to look at her. And so we put her on that plane, and from uh, the day after Thanksgiving until December the 18th of that year, I'm sure I went to the store, and I'm sure that I got in the car and drove. I'm sure that I made beds. I'm sure that I did a lot of things, but I don't remember any of them. December the 18th, I walked on the stairs of my home, and the newspaper was open on the kitchen table. And there was a column that was outlined in black, and at the top of that column was the word HELP. And underneath the word HELP was the number of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I walked directly to the telephone, and I dialed the number, and I said, I need help. And Bill Wallace, an old-timer in our area, had that answering service. And he talked to me for a while, and he told me a joke, and I laughed. And he said, you know, you can't be that bad because you can still laugh. He said he was going to send somebody out to talk to me, and I hung up the phone, and I completely forgot what I did. I took my pills because, you see, I'm a very nervous, high-strung person, and I have to take those for the rest of my life. And, uh, but I did not drink that day. And a little later, there was a knock at the door, and I opened the door, and there was this lovely lady standing there. I mean, really classy. And she said, my name is Helen, and I'm from Alcoholics Anonymous, and I would like to come in and talk to you. Well, I'm a mess. My house is a mess. And this lady comes in, and I know she said a lot of good things, and I don't remember a thing she said. But the one thing she did do about 20 minutes, half hour after she was there, she stood up and she said, you know, I really would like to apologize, but this is one week before Christmas. She said, I'm having some people over to my house for dinner this evening for the holidays. And she said, I've got a, a few things that I have to do, some last-minute things. But she said, if you don't mind, I'll have somebody call you, and they'll take you to a meeting. And she left. That lady didn't know how long it had been for anybody to apologize to me for anything. I was a nothing. I mean, I just really, I wasn't a fit wife. I wasn't a fit mother. I wasn't a fit daughter. I wasn't a fit anything. And this lady apologized to me. And the thought crossed my mind. Maybe in this whole rotten world, there is somebody that still cares. I was right. 
because I went to AA, my first AA meeting in Louisville, Kentucky, and I don't remember what was said, and I don't remember who was at that meeting. But I sat in the chair, and I felt something that I could not explain. I hadn't felt anything in so long that I wasn't really in touch with any of my feelings, but there was something in that room, and I couldn't figure out what it was. And the people would grab me, and they would try to hug me, and I would push them away and step back. And I told the lady that went with me, I said, all these people want to shake hands with me, and I don't want them to touch me. And she said, well, if you put your hands behind your back, she said, nobody will shake hands with you. And so that's what I did for six months. You see, I couldn't stand for people to touch me. couldn't stand it. And don't even look like you're coming over and kiss me, because that's it. That's it. And I went to these meetings, and what I did learn in that first year, and I'm a very slow, slow learner, is I learned about love. You see, I thought I knew what it was, but I, haven't even, I hadn't even scratched the iceberg. Love is calling you up in the morning and saying, are you going to a meeting? I'll stop by and give you a ride. Love is saying, we're going to go out and we're going to have lunch. You want to ride along? Love is saying, so-and-so is having a bad time. Why don't we go out and do such and such and we'll make her feel better? Love is knocking on my door and saying, is the coffee pot on? Love is saying, you know, I'm really glad you're here tonight. Love is saying, you know, I missed you at last week's meeting. Were you sick? <laughs> you know, I didn't know anything about that. I didn't know any, that people did things like that. And so I waited in meetings, and they told me, you know, you can trust the people. You can trust the people. And I didn't trust the people. And I picked out certain people, and I would listen to what they'd say, and then I'd watch to see if they'd do something opposite than what they said. And thank God they didn't. They walked like they talked. And that first year in AA for me was very, very difficult. My sponsor told me one night coming home from a meeting, very offhandedly and not directly to me, that we don't take pills in AA. But you see, I was a very nervous, high-strung person. Huh? <laughs> and so I went home that night and I threw all my medication away. And ladies and gentlemen, I had a lot of medication. I took antidepressants and I took tranquilizers and I was up to six sleeping pills a night. And I still walk the floors. And I threw all those pills away, and I went to bed that night, and I slept eight hours straight. And I thought, it's a miracle. Well, the next morning I got up, and it was like the whole world had caved in, and I really thought I was going to die. I had been on that medication for four years. And uh, I didn't tell anybody in AA that I had done it. And uh, once I got sick enough, I told my husband, no matter what I do or whatever, whatever I say, don't take me to a hospital. Don't call anybody. Just leave me alone. Because I truly felt that if I was that sick the next night that I was going to die. And why not? You know, why not? I didn't die, but my Lord, I was sick. And I don't recommend anybody ever going off a cold turkey, off of pills, ever. There's just too many treatment centers and too many hospitals around for anybody to do that. But I was so dumb that I just didn't know any better. But I eventually became a member of AA since I gave up my pills, I thought. And uh, I can remember on my first, my first year that I got my token, uh, I said, God is love and love is AA. And that's what I had learned in one year. 
Now, we talked about sponsorship here this afternoon, and, and you know, I think everybody's got to go at their own pace. And nobody ever told me to do anything. You know, when I went to a meeting, my sponsor said, uh, would you mind picking up that ashtray and bringing it in the kitchen and dumping it? She didn't say, you pick up your ashtrays around here, girl, you know. Um, when we needed a chairman, you know, they would say, would you mind chairing next week's meeting? Well, you know, I always aim to please. And I'd say, oh, oh yeah, I'd be glad to, I'd be glad to chair. And then I'd get home and I'd think, what the hell did I do, you know? And, I, you know, they would always ask me so nicely and so sweetly that I, I wanted to please and I wanted to do the right thing, and there I was. Well, one night after about a year, and I mean, I was really goofy. After about a year, there were only three members of our home group. And two of the members had already been an intergroup representative. And they said, would you mind going down to intergroup and, and sitting in on the meeting and seeing what's going on and come back and tell us? And I said, is that all that's to it? It's all that's to it. You know, I thought that was pretty good. So I went down to intergroup, and all these people were arguing, and they were saying. And I went back, and I said, you know, I don't know about you all, but our meetings, we never argue like that. And they're fighting over some kind of pamphlet that somebody wrote. And, and they said, well, go back next month and see, see what they say. That's how they got me to go to intergroup to find out the rest of the story, see. So i come back and I'd say, you never would guess what happened in a group this time. And that's what got me going on service work. The ashtrays were the first. The coffee was the second. I had never made coffee in a big urn. And they said, you go make a pot of coffee. And I didn't know the first thing about it. I started making coffee and I went to my first intergroups meeting. I went there for two years. And mainly because we didn't have anybody, any other members of our group to go down. And I found out that I liked it. And I grew a little bit in my program by going to those meetings because I met people from the south side of town. See, I live on the east side of town. I didn't even know there was a south side of town. And all of a sudden, they, they were saying, we don't like you. And I'd say, why not? And they say, because you come from the east end. And I'd say, well, what's wrong with the east end? Well, then they'd proceed to tell me, well, you've got big houses down there and you got this and that. And I'd say, I get just as drunk as you do, you know. And so I made some really good friends. And so suddenly the South and the East were no more, and we were all intergroup people. And I've, I've got friends in that intergroup and that I met there that are still friends now. And, and they still live on the South side, and I still live on the East side. And, and, and I learned that geography didn't mean a thing, that I was just like everybody else for the first time in my whole entire life. This is the end of Sad One. Please turn your cassette at this time and continue playing. Thank you. Side two, we'll continue in just a moment. There isn't one a, me a meeting I can walk into that I'm different. Not one. And I love that feeling, and I've got my roots, and I've got my home, and I've got things that I never dreamt possible. But I've got to go on with this. I thought my husband, my husband went to Allen on the same night that I went to AA. And here we are. We live happily ever after. And then I hate him every morning. And so I thought, when he goes to Al-Anon and I go to AA, we're going to be happily ever after. Well, I didn't really catch on to AA all that quick. And he didn't catch on to Al-Anon all that quick. And he would come home many times saying, they want me to change, but I don't know what they want me to change. And, you know, I couldn't help him because I didn't know what he was talking about. And I'd say, well, I have to change in AA. He said, yeah, but you've got a problem with alcohol. You don't drink. And I'd say, yeah, you're right. 
But you see, I felt he had a problem with alcohol. But I found out that I did not have the right to call him an alcoholic. And so he'd go to Al-Anon and they'd say, you got to change. And that made him very nervous. Well, anyway, we went through this back and forth for about five years. And everybody kept telling me in the group, you know, you, you, you work these steps and you go to your meetings. And I was into service work. And by this time, I was a general service representative. And I was meeting people from the south end of the state now. You know, okay, I'm from the middle of the state. You come from Louisville? Oh, that big town. And I say, well, where do you come from? Well, I'm from Paducah. You people are in the big city. I said, what do you mean us people in the big city? I get as drunk as you do. There we go. You know, it works every time. If you ever find anybody that's prejudiced, you say, I get as drunk as you do. And that ends it. But anyway, I started meeting some of the people out in the state. And they were just super. They were just super people. And so I got involved in that. And, and really my service work is what kept me level. I heard somebody say it here today. Sometimes just going to a meeting every week won't do it. Sometimes you need that extra push. I needed those extra people to make me prove to them that I was as good as them. I needed those extra people to be able to raise my hand and say, I'm in favor of this, and tell them why. I needed those extra people to come and say, come down to our hometown and see how our AA is. I needed the reassurance that I belonged in that group and that I could, I could grow that I could grow and make a life for myself. Well, my husband was still going to one hour and meeting a week and was very resentful of that. And I began going to meetings and coming out and feeling very fake. You know, I would sit there and say, well, now you've got to turn these things over. And um, if you do the right things, the right things happen. And then I would go home and my husband would say something to me and we'd get in this big fight and I'd think, you know, you're a fake. You're saying one thing and you're doing another. And uh, it was, the tension was really building. One night I went home from a meeting and he said the wrong thing to me. We had an argument and he said, I think you really need to see a psychiatrist. And I'll tell you, I had seen enough as a psychiatrist and I also had enough gumption and courage to know that I was an alcoholic. And my real living problem was alcoholism and that if I didn't drink, that I could be a good member of, of my society. And uh, so I told him I wanted a divorce, and ladies and gentlemen, that did not come easy to me. I asked him to leave the house, and my son was in his freshman year of college, and he was going to uh, down in uh, uh, Owensboro, Kentucky. And so I thought I would drive down and pick up my son from college, and I would tell him that he and his, he and my, his father were... Myself and his father were getting a divorce and break it to him easily on the way home. Well, I took my sponsor down to Owensboro with me, and we pulled up in front of his dorm, and he came running out with his little girl's hand, and he said, Guess what, Mom? I'm quitting college, and we're going to live together. And, and I sat there, and I looked at the two of them, and I said, Oh, by the way, your father and I are getting a divorce. And we rode home. And we talked, and I did not approve of this, and I gave him a very hard time. Um, he was my first, my oldest son and the first one in college, and I wanted him to finish, and I just didn't believe this would work. Um, you know, all those things we hear in AA about you can't change another person. By God, I was going to change him. Well, it turned out that my husband moved out of the house, and uh, the kids eventually moved out and got their own apartment. But for about a week or two there, I was just a little bit less than crazy. 
I knew I would have to get this divorce and go to work, and I didn't know what I was going to do. And uh, I had two sponsors, and my other work sponsor came in, and she said, well, I, there's no doubt what you're going to do. They're going to have a real estate exam in about three weeks, and you're going to get the book, and you're going to study, and you're going to pass the exam, and you're going to be a real estate agent. And the book's about this thick, and she brings it in and throws it to me and said, here, study. And so she would come over every afternoon, and we would study. And then my daughter was in grade school, and when she came home from grade school, she would pick up the book, and she would question me on this kind of stuff. My husband's running around the house saying, I don't want a divorce. I don't want a divorce. And my son's saying, where are we going to sleep, Mom? And, and so far, about three weeks, it was fun and games. And then my... My husband moved out. The kids got an apartment. I took the real estate test, and I passed it. And so I went to work. And uh, it was not easy, and but it was a fun kind of job because, you see, I had learned in AA to love people. And the only thing you've got to do in real estate is find a client, find a house, sell it to them, and have them be happy. And AA sets the groundwork for that. That's all I do. I find the house for the people, and I... Join them. That's it. Very simple. So I, I got into real estate, and my, uh, my son went to work and went started night school. So I had one son and one daughter at home. All this time I was in service work, and I came to this, the area assembly, and I said, poor me, I'm divorced. And the guys at the area assembly said, whose idea was it? <laughs> I said, well, I thought it was mine, but fellas, it's tough. And they said, well, everything's tough. It was tough getting sober, too. And those guys gave me so much support, so much support that I just can't believe what happened. Anyway, I was secretary of the area assembly when all this was going on. I was writing minutes. I was sending out notices. I'm dabbing the tears, and I'm studying for the real estate. I mean, it was really fun. But I made it through. And uh, one day, we got to the area assembly, and they said, you know, okay, we're going to elect a delegate. And uh, so I stood for delegate, and uh, we had five ballots, five ballots, and another guy and I were tied. And uh, Bill Wallace, the guy that answered the phone when I called, said it goes in the hat. And so the names went in the hat, and Bill Wallace walked up there, and he picked my name out of that hat. And, you know, to me, that's a better feeling than being elected. Because when I went to New York, I felt like I really belonged there. I felt like somebody up there said, hey, you know, you go and you do your best and you come home and you tell everybody what it's like. Just like you went to intergroup and just like you went to area assembly, you go up there and you do your things. When you walk in that room, you're no different than anybody else. They're all alcoholics and they've all been where you are. And I went to New York, and it was probably the most tremendous feeling I've ever had since I've been born, is when they called out the state of Kentucky, and I said, here. You don't know what that did for this one manic depressive that was nervous and high-strung and had to take medication for the rest of her life. <laughs> I came back home, and I worked on my program. And I worked in my area assembly, and as you know, when we, we do our stint as delegate, we come back as state chairman. But when I was in New York on panel 30, my first year, the members of panel 29 and panel 30 elected me their delegate chairman when I was there. And you know, if I had died right there, there wasn't anything more 
that could have happened to me. Nothing. I mean, it, it wasn't so much being delegate chairman. It wasn't that. It was that I spent a week with these people, and I knew them, and I loved them with the love that I learned in AA. And they chose me to go up there and represent them the following year. Now, the following year was a mess. And it, the, the delegates meeting was really terrible. And a man jumped up from the, from the floor of the, the delegates meeting and said, who voted you in there? And I said, the panel 29 and the panel 30 delegates. And he was on panel 31. And he was very angry at me. And we adjourned the meeting. And as fast as he could run from his seat, up to the podium, he threw his arms around me, and he said, Honey, I never meant to say that. I don't know what happened to me. Will you please forgive me? And before I left that week, he apologized to me at least a dozen times. And, you know, a few years before, I would have been crushed, been absolutely crushed if someone had said that to me. So you got to have thick skin, and you got to know there's a lot of emotion. And, you know, when I came and when I showed up here, I had no emotion at all. And now I can cry, and now I can laugh, and now I can be sad, and now I can be angry. And it's okay. It's okay. But I've, I've got to run on because I'm going over. But I, I, I just want to tell you what happened in my life. I, I went through state chairman, and after that, you know, everybody says, is there life after being a delegate? <laughs> there is. The first year I went up to New York, I was single. Between the process of, of going to New York and the following year, I got married. And I married a man who is an alcoholic who was in the program, and both of us brought into that marriage something that neither one of us had in our first marriage, and that was the love of AA. We go to many meetings together. We have a love that I did not know that was possible. He's very considerate and very understanding and very alcoholic. <laughs> and that's good. That's good because we both understand each other. My oldest son uh, married the girl that he brought home from college, uh, they got married twice, in fact. The first time they got married from a justice of peace downtown, he called me two hours before the wedding and said, we're getting married, do you want to come? And I said, no. And I didn't go. And I was very wrong. He called me that night and he said, Mom, we're having champagne. Please come over and have some with us. And I said, you don't have enough. <laughs> <laughs> then they decided that they hadn't married in the church so about three years later, they got married in the church, and they said, Mom, come to the wedding. So I had to get all dressed up and go to this wedding that I really didn't want to go to and sit in the front of you and watch him get married again. That's the second time. So then my son got a, my son got a, my son developed a problem with drugs, and um, that's the boy I said that called me and, and uh, said, Mom, I need help. I'm not an alcoholic, but I need help. And I had a friend who was in N.A., and he called him, and he brought him, he sponsored him into the N.A. program. His wife had left him. They had gotten divorced. He got himself straightened out. He moved down to Florida, got himself a new job, and guess what? They got married again. She went back down. <laughs> he called me up one night. He said, Mom, we just got married. And I said, oh, good, son. I'm glad. And they're very happy. So I always figure if they love each other enough to get married three times, it must be true love. My middle son is 23 now. And he was the boy that that helped me hide my bottles. He was the boy that wouldn't tattletale on me. And after George and I got married, he was just turning 21 or about 20. And he was an absolute snot. 
And uh, he really did. He resented George, and he decided he wasn't going to work. And I treated him like he was about 10 years old. And George came to me one day and said, look, this is a man living in this house, and you've got to treat him like a man. And he said, I really think he needs to be out on his own. And I said, not my baby. And he said, oh, yeah. So we talked to him. We talked to him, and we got him to, to find himself an apartment. And he moved, he moved out of the house on my birthday, and he was very angry. He walked out with his two pages and slammed the door and didn't even say goodbye. And I sat at the kitchen table crying real tears, saying, I'll never see him again. Well, about two days later, he called me, and he said, would you go over to Sears with me and help me pick out some drapes? And then I knew things were going to be going up. And uh, about six months later, he came back to the house, and George and I were there. And he thanked George, and he told him that that's probably the best thing that anybody had ever done to him, that he felt more independent and more responsible and more of a man than he ever had in his life. And it took a man to do that. I couldn't do that. My daughter is going to be 21 in July. She is just finishing her junior year at Western Kentucky University. She turned out to be a really good kid. I didn't give her much chance in the very beginning, but she's become a very nice young lady, and she and I have a lot in common. And she drags all her friends in from college saying, I think she drinks too much. You better talk to her, mother. <laughs> and the real, real, real topper of all this is when she was in high school, French braiding became very popular. And all the young girls were wearing it. And she came down one day and she says, Mom, do you know how to French braid? And I said, yes. And so she came down. She used to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning. And she'd come down at 6 o'clock in the morning with her hair brushed. And she would sit at my kitchen table. And I would brush her hair. And I would braid it far. And you all gave me that. It's the little things. It's the little things that get you. And she's a real dear now. And every time she has the opportunity, she brings that brush into me. And I comb her hair. Someday I'll have grandchildren. And maybe my daughter will understand what that means to me. To do that one thing for her. AA has given me so much. And I have given so little. So very little in comparison to the love that it has taught me. If there's anyone here tonight who is new, who is just starting to come around service or just starting to come around the program, there is only one thing that I can wish you. I wish you love. My name is Jackie and I'm an alcoholic. Thank you.